The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, uh, thank you, Maureen. <clears throat> I was going to say I've been here forever, and I think Luz has been here forever plus three or four at least. <laughs> so... I wanted to start by just expressing my appreciation for all of you for coming here tonight. You know, to take time out of what I imagine is uh, busy and complicated lives to just sit in silence, pay attention, and be simple for 30 or 35 minutes. Let everything drop away. So I think that's something um, worth appreciating. And in addition, I, I appreciate those who have decided to stay even longer and listen to me talk. <laughs> and hopefully will offer um, their own input um, later in the evening. Um, Another thing that I really appreciate is the whole Dharma scene in the Bay Area. It's just an embarrassment of riches. There's so many um, groups and teachers, um, resources like the Audio Dharma that I think this is going to show up on, books. One of the things that um, I liked about coming to IMC when I first came was that Gil had one foot in the insight tradition that comes from Spirit Rock and that from the Theravadan tradition. And then also he had one foot in the Zen tradition. So we would get speakers from Spirit Rock, we would get teachers from the San Francisco Zen Center, we'd get monastics, um, teachers of, of all sorts. And so... And I didn't really appreciate that until I started traveling. I do a lot of traveling for work. And one of my favorite things is when I go to a different city or a different, well, I guess mostly cities. Um, if I have an evening off, I go to the local Dharma group and see how is, how are, how is the Dharma unfolding in other cities. I think the smallest group I was in was a small, was in Fairbanks, Alaska. It was a little, a little uh, house that had no water in it because, you know, plumbing in that area where there's permafrost is, is difficult and expensive. So it was what's called a dry cabin. And there were just four of us sitting in this little room. Um, And that has its own value and sweetness. But I just wanted to say that I really appreciate um, being here in, in the Bay Area in general and in Redwood City in particular. I'd say maybe one of the only downsides of that is when it comes to picking a topic to talk about, it's hard to find one that hasn't been talked about in, in great detail and with great clarity and wisdom by so many other teachers. So to address that, what I did was, how can I find something new? So what I did was I went to the news. And uh, there's a couple of uh, story news threads that have caught my attention. But before I talk about those, I, I also wanted to talk a little bit about why did I come here and why do I come here? You know, kind of motivation for practice. Um, back in late 97, early 98, I had noticed that I was laboring under this delusion that there was somebody else that held the key to my happiness. There was a woman that if only, you know, she responded to me in a certain way, then I could be happy. And I realized that that, I mean, I realized it was a delusion, 
um, but I didn't know how to get free of that. You know, it just seemed like if if only she would, you know, respond in a better way, um, then I could be happy. And so I decided to come to IMC. I just happened to find the link to this to this group back then. We had a we had a website back, or there was a website back in 1998, and it was the end of January, and so Gil often, in the first four weeks of January, gives a four-part series on the Four Noble Truths, and so I guess the night that I came, I'm not sure that this is, I can't say that I remember this for sure, but. I think he was talking about the Eightfold Path. And to me it was just like, wow, here's somebody really talking about what I'm experiencing. You know, it wasn't talking about some great celestial being that was shining down on me. It was like, here is how that there's a value in looking at your suffering, looking at your distress, looking at your unease, looking at those, the ways in which um, we make our lives more difficult just in the way we relate to what's happening to us, taking it personally. And so... So that really struck me, and that got me coming every week, learning more about the Eightfold Path, learning more about the Dharma, learning how to meditate. Um, and one of the things that I've been reminded of over and over again is that that this Eightfold Path, this path of practice that we offer here, it doesn't get you to every possible goal that you might have. It really is, I'll say, designed. I don't know if you want to refer to the Buddha as an intelligent designer, but, you know, that, um, that it's really about recognizing suffering and finding the way out. Finding a way to freedom from the freedom from suffering. Freedom from those habitual habits that we have, those delusions that we have that keep us um, in some ways uh, unsettled, off balance, in distress. And the reason that I say that is that tonight I wanted to talk about um, one element of the, ra- uh, of the Eightfold Path. And often these elements are referred to as the like right view, right intention, right speech, right action, and so forth. Um, by right, it's, it's like if your goal is to be free, then this is the wise way to pursue to get that freedom. Not everybody has that goal. You know, there's a lot of other goals that people pursue in terms of uh, maybe uh, acquisition or attainment, having certain experiences, having certain status. So... It's helpful for me to say that to you because when I talk about some of the things that inspired me to talk tonight, um, some of the people that um, I'm talking about may not and probably don't share that same goal. 
nonetheless, um, seeing what I've seen in the news, it's inspired me to, to some in- introspection. So, turning to the news. Um, actually, one of the first news people that I used to listen to was Wes Nisker. He used to have a, a radio show on KSAN back in the 70s, in which he, he described the world in both an absurd and humorous way. And he'd always end with, and if you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. And that, oh, that inspired me. To, these days, I, um, I read the New York Times. I have an online subscription to that. So almost every day I look, look at that. Um, Google News offers sort of a thumbnail sketch of many of the things that other people in the world are thinking about and paying attention to. Um, I read one of the local newspapers once a week, and I just got back from about 10 days on the road. And When I'm on the road, I stay at hotels, and they always have cable television, which I don't have at home. So I've watched more cable news than I normally do. And the three news threads that have caught my attention and made and started me mm, examining more carefully how I act in the world. The the first one is um, it's really a two-year event called the presidential election in which is heated up now with presidential debates and um, particularly on the Republican side, I forget there's 16 or 18 actors. The central one of which, of course, is Donald Trump, who's a a master at um, gaining attention and notoriety through the things he says. Um, See, the second story is this one about the Ashley Madison website, which has gained a lot of attention. And it also raised for me um, thinking more about some of the um, ethical elements of the Eightfold Path. And probably the story that maybe the fewest people have seen, you, you probably wouldn't have heard about it unless you happened to read the New York Times, was a, uh, a story um, from August 15th in the business section of the New York Times, which was a description of what the work environment culture is like at Amazon. You know, this huge retailer, right? I mean, I'm sure everyone's heard of Amazon, right? And it was a disturbing story to me because it's very... So it was based on, I think, 100 interviews with both current and former employees in which there was a concerted, or, you know, a... What do you call it? A deliberate... um, motivation of all of the employees to really speak as confrontationally and as brutally honestly with each other as possible. And it was, you know, and there was a mechanism for sending private emails to somebody's boss. If you thought, if you thought they needed to know what their employee was doing, you could send these things off. So it, um, I guess on the one hand, Amazon is quite um, prosperous. And there were some of the employees that said, yeah, this is, I'm learning great work skills here. Uh, On the other hand, it really seemed to go against creating a sense of uh, connection with other people. At least that was my reading of this article. So based on reading those three uh, news threads, I decided tonight that I'd like to talk about um, right speech. So, So how many of you have heard a talk or read anything about right speech? 
Okay, so good fraction of you. So what I'm going to say tonight is is really my own take on it. Um, it's definitely not the last word. But it made me think about how concentrating on any one particular element of right speech um, has its problems. So, for example, um, well, first of all, I'll, I'll talk about what I'll, I'll say. Un, unwise speech is uh, deliberately lying. You know, deliberately saying something that you know is not true. And so in that first news thread <laughs> with the, the campaign, that, that rule doesn't really seem to apply. You know, that, and I guess people don't expect it to apply. Um, what strikes me, though, is that in some ways it we all learn from each other. We all learn not only from the people that are sitting in this room, but we learn from what we see and hear. So um, I wanted to do what I can tonight to, to counter some of that. So I'll start by saying, don't lie. <laughs> but the Buddha had more to say than just don't lie. And I'll read the, a little passage uh, of the Buddha from the in, in Guttara Nikaya. A statement endowed with five factors is well spoken, not ill spoken, blameless, and not faulted by wise people. Which five? It is spoken at the right time, it is spoken in truth. It is spoken politely. It is spoken beneficially. It is spoken with a mind of goodwill. Wow, so that's... That's quite a tall order, right? To, you know, like every time you speak, to really look at all five of those factors. That being said, I think it's worth it. I think it's worth to, worth it to really practice maybe just one of those at a time, you know, to, to start developing a skill and start noticing what effects there are. For example, with um, to speak at an appropriate time. It's not always easy to know when the appropriate time is, right? I had a friend that, I was in a men's group with in the 80s and 90s in Berkeley. And he was quite um, prone to blowing up, let's say. He had quite a temper. And after many, many years and several marriages, it finally occurred to him that at the end of the workday, when he came home from work and before he had had supper, this was when he was most vulnerable to just losing it. And so he told his wife, you know, please, if there's something important that you need to tell me, you know, something about our relationship or the kids or they actually both work together, he had a construction company, you know, please wait until I've sat and rested up a bit and had dinner before bringing this up. And I thought that was pretty wise of him. You know, that was kind of like figuring out when's the appropriate time. It wasn't like don't ever, you know, don't ever say anything to me that might be difficult to hear. But in that particular time, maybe 45 minutes or an hour, it's just, it's just not good. It's, and um, so, you know, we can learn that about ourselves and about other people. You know, maybe a spouse or a companion or a friend. Um, 
and a kind of tuning in to is this a good time for a particular kind of conversation? Um, so I don't, I don't have a spouse or a companion. Some of the people that I find I need to tune into in that way more are people, other people with children, particularly small children, and people with dogs. <laughs> Both of those people really always have some of their attention on either their children or their dog because things could go wrong pretty fast if they don't. And what I found is I just have, if, if I assume that when they ask me a question, they're going to give me their undivided attention for as long as I want it, things are not going to go well. You know, it's like, you know, you, you realize that, um, you know, the communications really have to be parsed, right? You know, you have to try to get one little bit in before, you know, the... the kid does something or the dog runs into the street. Um, and I, I say that humorously. I mean, I think everybody has their own uh, things that draw their attention away. Um, but, you know, getting to know when, when particularly for difficult communications, particularly for things that um, are maybe challenging to communicate, you know, first of all, getting to know, is this, is this the right time to say this to that person? You know, are they, you know, is, is there attention? Is there um, a sense of settledness or e ease, relaxation? Um, are there is there something distracting them? You know, is, you know, it might, you know, could be. I don't know what. And and I run into problems with that all the time. You know, it, but I think over time we can tune into each other and get better at knowing is this is this the time to make this communication. Even things that aren't so serious. Sometimes uh, I love telling jokes. And one of the, I think, keys to getting a joke to go over well is knowing whether somebody's ready, you know, like is in a mood to hear a joke or whether they're just, you know, not. So that's the first one is, is this an appropriate time? Uh, the second one is to speak honestly. I suspect we all imagine we know how to speak honestly, right? Um, there's a couple of things that I recognized I have lunch with a couple of other scientists and it just so happens they are, all three of them are the world's experts on every single subject. <laughs> so every, so, so they all, whatever they say, they state definitively, like this is how it is. And, uh, you know, sometimes I find that just humorous. Sometimes it's irritating. But I find, really, there's a lot of times when I speak, what I'm saying isn't some absolute truth, but it's, it's an opinion that I have. It's a belief that I have. Or it's, uh, you know, my limited understanding of something. So by prefacing things by, well my opinion on this is this, or one of the beliefs I have is this, or my current understanding of the situation is this, then I feel like 
I'm being more honest with the person that I'm talking to in that, you know, there's a recognition that there's, you know, that this is not some absolute um, fact. Uh, and I realize that some of these things interact. For example, sometimes not speaking can be dishonest, right? It's like, what are you not saying? That is, is you know, you're withholding something that um, really, maybe with an intention to deceive the other person. There might be other times when you're withholding something because you realize this is not the, this is not the appropriate time to say that. So, um, you know, I don't think there's so many real hard and fast rules here, but, but again, being honest in our communications, I think is a practice, and it's a, it's a skill that we can learn over time, you know, get better at. Actually be able to feel in the body, you know. Is what I'm saying right now, is this, am I being honest? Or, you know, is the body telling me, oh, you know, I'm looking for a little wiggle room here. I, I, I want to get out of something. The third element, or the third factor, is to speak politely. Now, when I first read that, I internally bristled a little bit. And I'll tell you why. When I was a kid, child, I don't know, sometime in the 50s, I think that the Walt Disney movie Bambi had just come out. And I don't know if you're familiar with Bambi. Um, this little deer that um, learned a lesson from its mother, which was, I think this is from Bambi, if you don't have something nice to say about somebody, don't say anything at all. So as a result, I was a pretty silent kid. I really, you know, I really didn't, I, believe it or not, I was actually pretty shy and, and reserved. So I think I took that in as being nice. And nice can be sort of a facade. You know, it's, it's sort of going along, but not really acknowledging to yourself that there's other things going on as well, other things that you need to acknowledge for yourself and possibly communicate to other people. But to speak politely isn't that. I don't think it's speaking, it's not being nice. It's being respectful. It's having respect both for yourself and for the person or people you're talking to. And I was thinking about recently how how easy it is for me to slip that one by. Um, partly because when somebody says something that I find um, hurtful or uh, aggressive, there's some impulse to just return in kind with the same kind of thing. You know, it's like somebody slips in a little slur or says something. There's, there's some maybe reptilian brain type thing that it's like, okay, well, if, if, you know, if that's the way it's going to be, then you know, I'm going to respond this way. Um, I see this a lot on certain websites that I look at, you know, certain... Uh, I've, well, believe it. So there's an online magazine I sometimes look at called Wired. So uh, if you think of Wired in terms of like somebody that's had too much coffee, all of the, many of the comments are like that. Somebody makes some response to the article and before you know it, there's two or more people that are just going at each other. Really, it seems like in a, in a ludicrous way, but 
you know, there's, there's this kind of lack of respect, you know, not really looking to uh, understand what the other person is saying and try to meet them in a dignified way. Now, there's other websites that I go to, particularly ones where, um, well, one that I, comes to mind is people that are helping each other out on solving problems with their sailboats. And it's just so nice to read those because, you know, you can tell somebody said, you know, I'm having a problem with my rigging and so and so. And the responses are really very um, to the point and helpful and um, courteous. And, you know, bolsters a sense of um, connection. So we've talked about talking at the appropriate time, speaking honestly, speaking politely, uh, to speak what is beneficial. You know, saying, you know, this requires tuning into what will benefit the other person by my saying it. Um, And again, that really takes tuning in. Um, I was thinking of an example, uh, two examples in that area. One, um, I think it was last year, I was visiting a friend in, in Wisconsin, and I had told her that I had heard this saying that I liked, which was, um, love is letting other people know where you're at. And... I didn't explain it beyond that. You know, I just, you know, I was thinking, you know, it's like, well, here's what I'm feeling, here's what's going on for me, here's the thoughts, um, here's my concerns, and so letting letting other people know what's what's going on. And about an hour later, she was repeating back to me this phrase in in a in a larger context. And the way she heard it was, she said, well, you know, your comment that you made an hour ago about love is letting other people know what's wrong with them. I thought, wow, <laughs> that, was, that was interesting. I thought, well, so which of the two is beneficial? Letting people know what's going on with you and, you know, or letting them know what you think is wrong with them? Um, maybe letting people know what's wrong with them some, sometimes might be beneficial. I don't know. But um, after many, many years, I've kind of learned that most of the time, unsolicited advice is not beneficial. <laughs> you know, tell, telling people what they need to do or behave or something is is not beneficial. I hope what I'm saying tonight is beneficial. (laughs) And then finally, and this is maybe even setting the bar even higher, is to speak with goodwill. So not just waiting for the right time and speaking honestly and politely and beneficially, but Maybe the highest bar is, can you speak with a sense of goodwill, you know, an attitude of kindness towards the other people, the other person? Um, do you even notice if that's operating? Um, I'm not sure that I have. Actually, probably my, one of my biggest teachers on this one is speaking with goodwill is my boss. Um, he often comes by my office to, to um, check in on how I'm doing. You know, he might have some administrative issue that needs to be dealt with. And... Now, this might be selective memory, but I can't really remember a time when I felt like he came in 
to dump on me, you know, to just like, you know, uh, there's always been an, an element of him saying something to me that I know he's saying out of a sense of wanting what's best for me, you know, out of a sense of kindness. I've kind of decided that um, once he retires, I'm going to have to retire because <laughs> I can't imagine having I can't imagine having a better boss than him. Mm-hmm. Um, so so these these five factors of of um, right speech of speaking at an appropriate time, speaking honestly, speaking politely, speaking beneficially, and speaking with goodwill. Um, I think are a, they're a, they're a practice. It, it's something that that we can do in in any environment we're in, and that it benefits us in the sense that that it speaking in in this way can lead to a a deep sense of inner relaxation and well-being which is very helpful for then seeing through the things that keep us from being free and we're also benefiting others you know that that you're you're offering a gift to other people by speaking in this way i mean if if you really um, I mean, I find, like, as I was talking about my boss, I find it's a real gift to me to have somebody speaking in a way that um, comes from a place of respect and goodwill and honesty and... Um, appropriate time, you know, appropriate uh, time-wise. So I think right, right speech is a gift we give each other. So that's really all I have to say about this, and we still have some time um, for questions or comments. Um, Examples, counterexamples, <laughs> and I don't know. I think, yeah, Marie. Something that I've had to, I guess, deal with that I think is sort of universal that that has sort of evolved with me is I have contact with with some people who fall into rants. Just it, usually it's a thematic rant that they're genuinely people that are in genuine pain, and they'll they'll go into they'll rant, and it's like no one else is in the room, hmm. and sometimes that's really difficult for me to handle. So that that I've learned to handle them in different ways. One I can actually say you're ranting, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it's like hello. But it's been a challenge to me. It's it's because I I notice my reaction to it, and I know that I have a, a one of those wanting to blast them back with with the energy that they're blasting out. But knowing that that's not skillful at mm-hmm. all, and so I'll find myself if I'm vulnerable or run ragged, I'll avoid them or excuse mm-hmm. myself. So. Is that something that you have anything to say about? I mean, you're in, in, in sort of an, uh, you know, the scientific world is full of ranters. Full of ranters, yeah. Um, I suppose it depends, you know, it depends on each each situation is, is different. Um 
one as you were saying that one one thought that came to me was to respond in as kind a way as possible hold that thought i've got to go <laughs> you know i mean i i don't know Yeah, I did have somebody actually ranting at me on Christmas Eve. She didn't like the present I got her. And I thought, okay, well, I'll, you know, I'll listen. And, you know, I thought, okay, once, you know, things settle down, then I'll explain what my motivation was for giving that gift. But then it turned out there was actually a laundry list of about five complaints. And... I recognized that I was starting to get angry. I wasn't angry yet. You know, you can, sometimes you can, if you tune in, you can feel when you're angry. And so I said, well, um, I'm going to leave now. I'll call you tomorrow morning. So it wasn't like, you know, that's it, uh, you know. It's like, I will call you tomorrow morning, and I did. Um, but also, you know, I'll, I think it's, it's very appropriate to set your own boundaries, you know. I mean, if, if something really seems unskillful to um, take care of yourself. But you might also come, you know, something else might just pop into mind at that particular moment. Sometimes, oh yeah, I was thinking about, there was another time, there was a woman who was a nutritionist who got very upset at somebody else at a, at a vegetarian potluck. She was ranting at this guy for following his doctor's orders. And she said something, and it just occurred to me that there was a time to just tell a joke. <laughs> and it just, disperse the energy you know it just it just it kind of broke through that kind of sometimes that trance mm -hmm. that that can happen um, the nutritionist is still talking to me so I what didn't do permanent damage but <laughs> but you know some, sometimes you just can kind of find a way maybe humor or I um, I read an article <clears throat> about a week ago, uh, and it was the the title of the article was "Divorcing a Narcissist," <clears throat> and it was sort of a Q and A on what it's you know how to deal with that situation, and it talked about narcissism in the culture and how it's sort of a spectrum of of a condition, but it started getting me thinking that I. I look around and I see I'm in relationship with people in my work life and social life that sort of embody some of these traits to some degree or another where it tends to be about them mm -hmm. and there's not a lot of sort of balance or, or energy back. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily a question, it's more of an observation about um, how how challenging it can be to you know it's really helpful to hear those five traits of right speech and I mean I've been sitting for twenty years and it's sort of like um, it's really good to hear those again um, so you know I, I I guess it's if there's a question it's sort of like what have you learned about having to sort of consistently deal with people where there's they're sort of more like a black hole than mm -hmm. um, radiating much energy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wish I had a good answer to that. Um, You know, I, it, one of the things that's occurred to me is a, another thing that I'm um, 
thankful for, or grateful for, about this Sangha is it's put me in touch with and I find myself surrounded a lot more with people who practice in this way. You know, that I realize that whether or not we wanted to, we do tend to absorb things from the people we're around. So if you're around somebody that's, you know, continually figuring out some way to put other people down or, um, you know, um, look for the worst in every situation, you know, it does affect you. So to the extent, so for me, to the extent that I can, I really avoid, you know, skill, uh, hopefully skillfully avoid being in those situations. Um, sometimes I wonder how I survived my childhood. You know, I, I hung out with two guys that were two years older than I am that taught me to smoke, <laughs> taught me to steal, <laughs> Um, crazy ideas about women. One of them ended up in prison. Uh, the other guy uh, I, I've lost track of. Um, and I suspect from, partly from my parents seeing the effect of those, you know, they, those people, they, they would make play dates for me with other children that they thought had better quality. So, you know, we're still making play dates. It's just that now we're the parent, right? We're, we're the one that chooses, at least in, in many situations, who we spend time with, who, you know, who, who we're going to um, let influence us. Is that, is that helpful? I thought there was perhaps just one thing that I think is helpful to remember, and that is that these same rules apply when in our internal dialogues or monologues, mm-hmm. and that often it's useful to say to yourself, gee whiz, that, I'm not being very kind here. <laughs> <laughs> or perhaps I shouldn't be thinking about something that, you know, there's really no reason to talk about anymore because it's in the past. and. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Etc. Yeah, that's a great observation. Yeah, yeah, that it. Uh, yeah, self-talk. very early in my study of all this and I always feel like I'm missing something about right speech because to me if you're speaking at the right time and you're being honest and you're polite and you're speaking beneficially mm-hmm. you're speaking with goodwill and then the fifth trait is speak with goodwill mm-hmm. and so I always feel like okay what what <laughs> what additional step or trait is goodwill because you to me, you seem like you're achieving it with the first four traits. Mm. Uh, um, so I, I just keep struggling with, okay, that if you're being beneficial and polite and you have good intentions, mm-hmm. it seems like you're there. And I just always am interested in your take on the fifth of those traits. Oh, the fifth of the four, five factors? Yeah. Um, I think they work together, you know, as you said. You know, you know what's the? Well, for example, I, w- I was going to say maybe. I think you can speak respectfully to somebody that you don't feel goodwill for. I mean, it's it might be a a challenge. You know that. Um, when I read that, I started. I, I was. I've been. I'll say reflecting on this on on my drive here from work. Um, 
to me, it's, it's really the piece about um, a kind of open-heartedness. Um, you know, really being open to the other person. And realizing that 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 takes some cultivation. But yeah, I I think you're right. That they do all... um, play together and perhaps if you started by before speaking you know really you know kind of checking in with do I is there a sense of goodwill to this person that I'm going to talk to probably these other things would just follow in the wake of that so I I work as an experimental scientist and one of the things that I like about this practice about Buddhism is I see Buddhism as experimental science you know you you try things out you know how does it work you know you you look at the results you get as honestly and unbiasedly as possible and you go well oh that's interesting you know when I you know when I did this you know when I smiled at that person they really warmed up you know when I told them what's wrong with them (laughs) you know things didn't go so well you know it's it's so all of this is is really kind of an experimental um, in my view an experimental science Um, it's just that other people have already like the Buddha and however many people between 2,500 years ago and now um, have said, here's some guidelines. You don't, you don't have to reinvent all of this yourself. Here, you know, here's, here's things that if you follow them will be to your benefit. So I hope that So it looks like it's 9 o'clock. So thank you all for coming and um, thank you for your practice. And the next time you encounter somebody that you need to talk to, please be kind with yourself <laughs> about, <laughs> about not, uh, not letting these five factors be yet another thing that uh, you can beat yourself up about. But to to cultivate them and use them wisely. So, thank you.